Welcome back to another episode of the Mind Body Musings podcast with your host Maddie Moon and that is me and I am so excited to announce episode 133 because today we have on Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen is the author of several books including the blockbuster New York Times bestseller Better Than Before, The Happiness Project and Happier at Home. She has an enormous readership both in print and online and her books have sold more than 2 million copies worldwide in more than 30 languages. On her popular weekly podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, she discusses good habits and happiness with her sister Elizabeth Kraft. They've been called the click and clack of podcasters. Her podcast was named an iTunes list of best podcasts of 2015 and was named in the Academy of Podcasters best podcast in 2016. BuzzFeed listed happier in 10 life-changing things to try in June. And the New Yorker said, their voices remind you that life is a human project that we're all experimenting with. The podcast constantly ranks in iTunes top charts. Gretchen Rubin started her career in law and was clerking for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor when she realized she wanted to be a writer. She lives in New York City with her two <laughs> with her husband and her two daughters. I am so excited to have Gretchen on the show. Gretchen was someone that I had as a how shall I say, a, a goal a goal of mine, a dream guest, a North Star guest where I was looking towards, didn't know if I'd get her on, and I, I reached out, and she was like, sure, let's do this thing. So I feel really grateful right now to have Gretchen on and to be able to share her insight with all of my audience and everyone that stumbles upon this podcast. So if, if you're searching for happiness and you're looking for happiness hacks and ways to increase your daily mojo and drive and joy, then you're going to love Gretchen's work. You're going to want to immediately get a copy of Gretchen Rubin's book, The Happiness Project, because that book is exceptional and I, I just adored it. So I don't want to take up too much time before we head on over to listen to Gretchen. I don't really have any announcements today. Um, this morning I, I've been fighting a little bit of a sinus infection slash cold. So if my voice sounds a little bit different than normal, that is why. So thanks for bearing with me. The podcast episode, I will not have that. So all is good there, but do make sure that you go to the show notes for this episode. I don't know if you always are like, I'm going to go to Maddie Moon's website and check out the show notes. If you don't, that's cool. But today do it because she gives so many good things and links that are included inside of this post. So make sure you go there to check out the quiz she talks about, the app she talks about, the inventions and tools she uses that she talks about so you can get all of that juicy goodness. The review of the week comes from M31200 and she says, inspirational with five stars. Every time I listen to a podcast by Maddie Moon, I walk away inspired with a whole new perspective on health. Maddie's podcasts are absolutely amazing and I can't recommend them enough to everyone I know because I think she has the power to change society's perspective on what health and wellness is truly about. Thank you so much, M. I appreciate that loads. If you haven't yet been going to my website and watching my weekly videos, I invite you to do so because I am trying to put out one video at least every week and it's going on both my YouTube channel, Maddie Moon TV, and my website. So before New Year's officially kicks off, make sure that you watch the video that I put out there last week called something 10 times better than a New Year's resolution and do that exercise that I include before the New Year's hits. And if you're already getting caught up in all this New Year's resolution chit chat, you're going to love this tool that I provide for you. 
It's going to simplify things. It's going to get a little bit of a fire underneath your butt. And I think you'll actually accomplish what it is that you want to accomplish this year if you do this thing that I call the three and three. So check out that video by going to my website, maddiemoon.com. And I also have a video that I released this week. And this one is on feminine energy. I released it yesterday. So if you're on my new my newsletter, you'll be getting an email about that video as well. But if you are not on my email list, but you'd like to watch that video, go to maddiemoon.com and you'll be able to read it. So thanks everyone for listening to this intro. I think it's about time we listen to the wonderfully wise words from Gretchen Rubin. So let's head on over. You are now entering the Mind Body Musings podcast. If you find yourself hungry for growth, eager for inspiration, and longing for self-improvement, welcome home. Hosted by motivational speaker and life coach Maddie Moon, you can be certain you will learn how to change your life in magical ways in each and every episode. Are you ready to stop caring what other people think? Is it time you break limiting beliefs and empower your whole being? Do you know how to use the one life you've been given to the absolute fullest? Join Maddie Moon and her inspirational guests every Wednesday for the life-altering discussions on freedom, vulnerability, abundance, and so much more. For more insight, grab your free gift on MaddieMoon.com and uncover your own once-in-a-lifetime greatness within. If you have kind words to say, feel free to leave a review on the show in iTunes or send your favorite episode to a friend. We look forward to hearing your insights and growing together in unexpected ways. And now, without further ado, here's your host. Maddie Moon. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Mind Body Musings podcast. I'm here with Gretchen Rubin, who I have been talking about having on the show for a while now. When I emailed you, Gretchen, to get you on, and you emailed me back, and you were like, this sounds fun. Let's do it. I was so excited, and I'm still so excited to have you here because for me, uh, I think everyone has those people in their lives that they just really resonate with and get excited to hear what's new for them. And you're definitely one of those people for me because you come at life from so many angles and it gets me thinking and saying to myself, wow, I never even thought of that before many times. So I'm happy to have you here. I know my audience is thrilled. So thank you for coming on the show. Oh, I'm so happy to be talking to you. Thank you for having me. Well, for the one or two people that don't know much about your story, let's go ahead and launch into your background and how you got to where you are today as this fabulous author and idea inventor, all those wonderful things that you are. <laughs> um, well, I started my career in law and um, I was actually clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor um, when I realized, you know, like, hey... I actually want to be a writer. And um, so it took me a couple of years to make the full transition. But um, I I had an idea for a book that I wanted to write and um, went to the bookstore and got a book called like How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal and followed the directions. And um, so having started out in law and then, and then my husband and I moved from Washington, D.C. to New York. And I just worked on a proposal and got an agent and have been writing ever since. And uh, I, like I've written a biography of Winston Churchill. My first book was called Power, Money, Fame, Sex, A User's Guide. And now I, most, I write about happiness and good habits. And so sometimes people think like, well, why do you write about all these 
wildly different subjects, but really to me, my topic, my subject is human nature. That's what's fascinating to me. Why are we the way that we are? How do we understand ourselves better? How do we change? Um, how do we understand other people? Because a big thing is, uh, my sister said, um, you know, the goal of adulthood is to get other people to do what you want. <laughs> um, and so that's what I'm interested in is just trying to understand like how people work. Mm, fascinating. So the, the time period between you, um, having this steady paycheck in this job and then wanting to become a writer, did you experience a lot of fear in that transition? Like, is this going to work? Ah, failure. What's happening? I'm writing. Like, I won't have this super steady paycheck doing this thing on my own. Did you have to face a lot of like discomfort in that process or did it feel fairly natural to you? You know, it's interesting because at the time it was, it like, it felt like a big undertaking, but it didn't feel that scary. Like I wasn't that nervous. And I had got to the point in my life where I was like, you know, I really at this point would rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. I felt like if I took another law job, it would be very hard for me to turn back or to try something new. I felt like this is my, this is my chance to really try it. And if I don't try it now, I'm afraid I never will. And so I'm just going to give it a shot. And, um, you know, I, I, at that time, there really wasn't self-publishing or anything like that. Um, and so for me, like a big thing was to get an agent. And it's still, if you want to be traditionally published, you still need an agent. So it's a very big step for people who want to go into traditional publishing. But now you don't have to go into traditional publishing. You can be a published author and just do the whole thing on your own. Um, but at that point, you really, really needed that gatekeeper of an agent. And so for me, like that was a very big moment. When I got an agent and I still have the same agent as I had then, um, that, then I was like, okay, like I, I felt much better about the whole thing because um, it's a big it's a big undertaking, you know, to get an agent. Um, and so and I had never been a writer, so I didn't have clips. I didn't have short stories. I didn't have I, you know, I was starting over from nothing. Um, so I had excellent legal credentials. But the problem with legal credentials is they sound so boring. Like when people would describe me, she's a lawyer turned writer. I'd be like, oh, don't say that because that just sounds makes me sound so dull. I would never read anything written by a lawyer turned writer, and I am one. Um, so, uh, so, but I, I didn't feel that much fear. Um, I maybe because I knew so much what I wanted to write. Like I, I ha sometimes when people want to leave something, they know what they don't want, but they don't really exactly know what they do want. Or even people who want to be writers, they want to be writers, but they don't really know what they want to write about. And so I feel like something that made it a lot easier for me was that I knew I wanted to be a writer and I knew the book that I wanted to write. Um, so it was very clear to me, like, I could succeed or fail, but what I would should do was very clear. And I think that makes it easier um, because it's just there's less uncertainty. I could really definitely agree with that with the when when it becomes more important for you to like have the risk of failure than it is to succeed in what you're currently doing. I think that's when the fire really gets lit underneath your butt because failure is something. Well, first of all, failure is totally made up. That's a totally made up concept. In my opinion, there's really no such thing as failure. It's just learning something new and that new thing that you learn generally is along the lines of something that doesn't really fit with your life, doesn't really work yeah. out that well. So that's the way I try to think of it. But when the risk of said failure becomes uh, more important to you than continuing down the path, that's when I think that transition becomes less 
daunting, I'd say. There's still the frightening aspects, but less daunting. One of the things I wanted to ask you was uh, specifically with the Happiness Project, what drew you to happiness instead of joy? Well, you know, there's there's a lot of arguments about definitions in the world of happiness. And so like in law, there are, you know, you spend an entire semester arguing about the definition of contract and uh, happiness and all its, its its synonyms are even more difficult to define. There's something like 15 academic definitions of happiness. And so people get into long disputes about is it happiness? Is it joy? Is it bliss? Mm-hmm. Is it contentment? Is it self-actualization? Is it self-realization? Is it peace? Is it fulfillment? And I'm like, whatever. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I know how this goes. And so I don't, I didn't spend any time worrying about it. I'm like, whatever happiness is to you, whatever that looks like, however you want to define it is fine. Um, and I like the fact that it's a very loose thing because then I feel like everyone can bring their own concept to it. Um, and I think, I think it's, it's less about the definition of what that is, um, than the idea of just moving in the right direction. So it's, it's less about being happy or being joyful or achieving joy or achieving happiness and more about like, how can you be happier? Mm-hmm. Because I think sometimes when pe- people get focused on like, well, what would it look like? And how do I know if I get there? And once I'm there, how do I stay there? And it's sort of like, well, that's not really how life works. Um, so I think it's more about moving in the right direction. So I'm much more, I'm much more interested in, in growth than I am in like, what exactly is it that we're all talking mm-hmm. about? Yeah. In a way, like you're making me think like, differently it could be something that people are just getting their panties in a wad about it's like focusing a little bit too much on the wrong thing like let's define this let's make this black and white guys when it's not really like that yeah well and i think that's probably my legal training because like in law it's very very important like do we have a contract that's like that's incredibly important that we understand yes we do have a contract and that and truly you can spend years of your life arguing about like what is a contract what is a tort um and i think i just got sick of that um of uh and and it just doesn't seem like for the lay person now of course if you're doing research if you're doing a scientific study you have to know very precisely what you're talking about so that everybody can understand what the results mean but i think for the lay person um, that kind of specificity ends up being distracting and frustrating instead of actually helping you to lead a happier life. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. Now, with what you do, with your podcast, which I love, by the way, your podcast. Oh, thank you. Oh, I love it. It brings me so many ideas. And Oh, uh, thank you. It's every time I hop, because the reason why I'm so drawn to you and your message and, and your show is because you talk about life and the many different aspects of it. While I think it's great to listen to certain podcasts where you know what you're going to get, because some people really specialize in relationships. Some people specialize in building a business, but you cover like, I mean, happiness is a very big thing. It's a very broad thing. So it makes it probably a little bit easier to be able to cover so many topics. But at the same time, you have to have an imagination and creativity to be able to think of all the different aspects. Now, with this, I wonder, first of all, do you ever feel like you get information overload? Like there's just so many things you can do to have more happiness in your life. And and you, I'm assuming, are constantly studying these things, hearing about different exercises and hacks and like people's stories and this and that. And it is a lot. Do you feel like you have an easier time kind of uh, compartmentalizing things and letting them uh, go for the day whenever you're kind of turning off your brain? Or do you have to consciously 
take a step back sometimes to, to gel and just like be without all of the information. Well, you're exactly right. It's a, it's a, it's an incredibly broad subject and that's part of what's fun about it is like, it feels so vast and I love research and I love like taking notes and sort of, sort of, sort of sorting through ideas. And so for me, that's really great, but you're right. Sometimes it feels like a lot or like I'm, I'll just be reading a book and I'll, you know, like I'm reading a novel for fun. And then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, but wait, this is a really important point that this author is making. And you could actually make it into a try this at home because what, like what they're arguing is this or, or like I'm reading Agatha Christie's autobiography now, which was written like, you know, 40 years ago. And she makes some side comment and I'm like, Oh, that's a know yourself better because she's saying you can divide people into these kinds of people and so sometimes it's like i just want to be like cruising along and not constantly taking notes but on the other hand that's part of what i love is i love taking notes and i love i love writing things down so it's kind of um it's kind of it's it's my playground and it's also my cubicle um but i have i i never tire of the subject and I think part of it is, is, you know, like I have a blog and I write on my blog and I write books and then I have this podcast where I talk with my sister. And so there's a lot of different ways, like I'm talking about a subject, but in a lot of different ways. And so it can be visual. It can be, it can be conversation. It can be pithy. It can be lengthy. Um, so I feel like I have a lot of creativity in how I'm processing the ideas. And so that I think that helps keep it. Um, feeling lively and fun and, uh, and, and not burdensome, not just like, oh my gosh, it's like an, you know, taking notes in another, in an, in another class. Do you have a creative process that you go through? Like when you hear something, you keep a hmm. tangible journal with you or certain times of the day uh, where you tend to be most creative? Well, I have a little notebook. I finally, you know, everybody, there's the constant search for the perfect notebook. Um, okay. I found, I have found this like really small light notebooks, which I carry with me in my backpack. So if anybody, if like I need to take notes, like if somebody says something to me, I'll either email it to me, e email myself if it's just like a to do or if like I need to take extensive notes on something, um, I'll write it in this little notebook and then I process the notebook. But basically what I do, what my process is, is everything to me comes from reading. Every everything, every idea that I have comes from a reaction to something that I've read. And so I read constantly and a lot of really weird books. Like one of the things that's really been fun, again, like using like different things, uh, different social media and different outlets, is every Sunday night um, on my Facebook page, I post a picture of all the books that I've finished that week. So some books take more than a week to finish. Some books I don't finish, and so I never show you them because um, I just abandon them halfway through. But these are the books that I finished. And if you look at my books, or sometimes I go back and look at what I've read, um, I read some really, like, you know, I read, like, things that everybody's reading, but then I read a lot, like, Agatha Christie's autobiography. Who knew? You know, like, I, I don't even remember how I figured out that she even had one or checked it or, you know, found it in the library. Um, and, but I'm always looking for things. And so I do. I have I have a bunch of a, a few giant documents. One is called Notes, which is just any note that is there's no other place for. One is called Quotes 2006 Plus, which is every if I just like a passage from a book. I'll write it there if it's like, you know, just like a quotation. And then I have happiness quotation. I have one sentence aphorisms. I have um, notes on happiness, notes on habits. Um, so I've got these giant documents. And um, and so what happens is, like, let's say with my habits book, I just started a document that had anything related to habits 
that struck my fancy. Anything that seemed interesting or relevant or that I just thought was interesting. And I would have, and once I had like 300 pages of notes, then I started to say like, well, if I was going to write a book about habits, how would I structure it? And that was actually incredibly difficult to figure out with my habits book. If you look at it now, it's just all the strategies that people use to make or break their habits, which seems like the most obvious structure that there is. But it actually took me months and months to understand that because I was like, well, should it be about like eating habits and exercise habits? But then there's all this redundancy, blah, 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 blah. But then just looking through my notes, I began to see like, oh, well, you know, actually there's pairing and there's monitoring and there's scheduling and and I see, and, and, and so then I, then what I would do is I would make an outline that is the structure of the book, and then I would start just cutting and pasting all the notes into the place where they belong. So it's very mechanical. That part is very just like drudgery because it's just cut, paste, cut for like 500 pages. And then I start saying like, okay, now I'm going to turn this into a book. And that's when I start writing, what do I think? What do I think about habits? How do I make sense of all this material? And so... It's it's really like a reading and notes notes taking based kind of creativity, um, because that and that's when I get my ideas is once I start to process everything that I've written down, then I start thinking like, mm, well, I have a thought about this. I have a thought about rewards. Everybody's constantly talking about rewards and habits, but actually, now that I look at all this stuff, I'm thinking. Rewards are a terrible idea when it comes to habits. This is a really bad idea. It never works. Look at the data. You know, and then it's like, now I have a thought, I have a view, I have a, you know, I have my data, and, um, and, and then I, off I go. So that's sort of my process. It's a very book-based process. I'm can a you, very book, book-based person. Can you explain, well, I actually have some questions about that, but I am curious about the rewards thing. Why is rewards a bad mm. idea? With habits? Yeah. So with rewards, like what are the a couple, there's a couple reasons why they're a bad idea. So so um, so let's say let's say um, I, my idea for reward is um, every time that I go for a run, I'm going to let myself have one um, mini candy bar from my kids' Halloween stash. So I get like one bite-sized candy bar every time I go for a run. Now what happens is that. When you give yourself a reward for something, the lesson that you're teaching yourself is that you wouldn't otherwise do it. It's in some way it's an imposition or it's a deprivation. Somehow you need a reward in order to do this thing. And what often happens, and I'm sure you've seen it in your own life, is that pretty soon the reward isn't enough. And so either maybe you decide you should deserve your reward even if you didn't go for a run. Well, you know what? I hurt my foot. So I really can't go for a run, but I think I should still get my bite-sized candy bar. Um, or, you know, oh, I've been traveling, you know, so I think I should have a couple bite-sized candy bars, but who could expect me to go for a run, right? Mm-hmm. And so the reward starts just, you feel like you should get the reward even without the activity. And then also, you know, one of the things that they've shown is that a lot of times people think like, well, we're going to put a reward with an activity, but then over time, the activity will become a habit. And so we will take away the reward, but the activity will continue. That doesn't happen. Pay attention. Like, that just doesn't happen. Usually if the reward stops, the activity stops. And sometimes the activity stops even before the reward stops. And there's something about rewards where people are – they learn not to like the activity. Like, there's this one fascinating study that they did with, like, preschoolers. Now, preschoolers love to color. They they love to color. It's something that little kids just like to do. But if you reward children for coloring – they will, they won't, they don't like to color as much. Mm-hmm. And they won't color as much, and the quality of their drawings go down. 
Interesting. Um, if you reward children for reading, oh, like you get a pizza every time you read five books, what you see is that children start reading easier and easier books so that they can get to their five oh, faster. Yeah. And then they don't read for fun because they're like, well, clearly people around here don't read for fun. You only read if you're going to get a pizza. If you're not going to give me a pizza, I'm not going to read. The point of reading is that it's fun. So the one kind of reward that can work is a reward that takes you deeper into a habit. So if you said to a child, every time you read 10 books, we'll give you another book. Well, because that's what's the reward for reading, more reading. Or I worked, I went to a company and I, th- I thought this was brilliant. So they had a company gym and they kept track of how often you went, which is good. That's the strategy of monitoring. People do a better job when they know how often they're doing something. If you went to the gym 75 times in one year, what was your reward? Not a t-shirt, not a pizza. Next year free at the gym. So the reward for the gym is more gym. So if you wanted to reward yourself for going to yoga, a thing would be like, well, you know what? I need, I have this like ratty old yoga mat. And now that I'm doing all this yoga, I really need a better yoga mat. But to say like, oh, I'm going to get myself those black boots because I've been doing so much yoga. Pretty soon you're going to be like, I think I should get the black boots even without the yoga. It just doesn't work very well. Um, and, uh, and so what you really want to do is focus on why you're doing it. I mean, you're going to yoga for a reason. You're eating healthier for a reason. And really think about, well, what is that reason? And what's the pleasure that comes from it? I love the, the wonderful feeling of relaxation I have after yoga. That's a reward. But yeah. it's tied to the yoga. Mm-hmm. Right. It just doesn't work very well. That I mean, makes sense. Yeah, rewards just don't work very well. Now that I think of it, that makes a lot of sense. And any time that you feel like you need to do A to get B, you're going to be focusing yeah. more on B. So you completely miss out on all the benefits that would come from um, come from A. Like I, I do the same thing with yoga. Like I used to, um, I used to go to like these only like I'm sure you're used to the Mind Body app when you sign up for. A, or maybe you haven't heard of it, but when you sign up for like a certain class, sometimes some different places use these mind body apps where you have to like reserve your spot. And yeah. that never seemed to work out for me ever. Like if I would put my name down, reserve my spot for a class of Pilates that had 10 people that it could accept, then I felt like locked in and I felt bad if I canceled or this or that. So I don't go to any really classes that you have to do that beforehand because I try to keep my motivation pure and like I want to make sure and this goes mm-hmm. goes into probably your um four tendencies yeah yeah that's what I was gonna say like that is I yeah. think from what I understand I, w- I do want to talk about this next but I think I am more of like the rebel and so mm-hmm. when I do that that's very rebel that's it's so funny I immediately am like I don't want to go but then I have to go because for a lot of places if you cancel within the next like or two hours before it's starting you lose your money and I'm like I can't lose my money and then it it becomes a disaster so I have to only do things that I don't have to sign up for I can be spontaneous it's my choice it's always my choice I rebel rebel (laughs) rebel rebel that's so interesting choice these are the those are the values of a rebel can you explain all of them just so that my listeners understand a little more so right, so the four tendencies framework is a is a framework that I came up uh, with uh, to explain sort of very big, like profound patterns that I saw um, differences among people that I was trying to understand. And so it's whether a person is an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. Those are the four categories, and um, it has to do with how a person responds to an expectation. So it's an outer expectation, like. Uh, this gym is expecting me to come to the 10 a.m. yoga class, so that's an outer expectation. Or an inner expectation is I want to keep my own New Year's resolution, or I want to I want to get back into playing guitar. Um, 
So an upholder is somebody who readily meets outer and inner expectations. So they meet a work deadline. They keep a New Year's resolution without much fuss. They, they want to know what's expected of them and meet those expectations. But, um, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Uh, then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations, but they'll do something only if they, they think it makes sense. So they hate anything arbitrary, inefficient, irrational. Uh, their first question is like, why should I listen to you? Why does this make any sense? Why should I spend my time like this? Um, once something passes sort of their criteria, they'll do it, no problem. But if they don't think that it makes sense, they won't do it. So in a way, they make everything an inner expectation because if it meets their if it meets their standards, they'll do it. If not, not. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So I got my insight into obliger when a friend of mine said, I don't understand the problem because when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? And what I realized is when she had a team and a coach waiting for her, she had no trouble showing up because there was outer expectation. But when it was only her own inner expectation, then she struggled. And then rebel. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do, when they want to do it in their own way. And if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. So they always want to do what is their choice. They don't like being locked into a schedule. So when you say things like, I don't like knowing that they're expecting me, you know, that is like the rebel is like, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. I don't like to look at my calendar and see that I have to be in a certain – I don't know what I'm going to want to do at 10 a.m. on Saturday. Like maybe I don't feel like doing that. So they often don't like to make plans or they like professions where they, where they have a lot of flexibility, a lot of choice. So, But I will say this. Rebel, your tendency, is the smallest tendency. That is the one the fewest people belong to. And I'm an upholder, which is sort of the opposite of rebel. And also very, very small tendency. So you and I are like – we're like the extreme fringe personalities. <laughs> Most people are questioners or obligers, and the biggest tendency for both men and women is obliger. That is the biggest tendency. Um, and so, and I can go into like what you can learn from your tendency, but like you, you learned, you knew something about yourself, which is I don't do well when I schedule things. That doesn't make me want to go. It makes me not want to go. So I need to leave my options open, and then I can just choose to go when I want to. Well, that's a really good way to take advantage of your tendency because it's like don't spend a lot of time fussing with it, you know, because people will tell you, I'm sure people have said to you, put it on your calendar and then you'll go. And you're like, no, I won't, mm -hmm. you know, so ignore them because that doesn't work for you. It would work for some other tendencies, doesn't work for rebels very well. So, um, so once you know your tendency or other people's tendency, then you can set things up in a way that's uh, more likely to lead to success. Oh, I love that so much. And I feel like since you're always talking about happiness hacks, I think for me, that's an happy, that's a happiness hack is like only doing types of exercise or movement that doesn't require me to do that. And so I found a place that doesn't require me to do that. And I love yeah. it. Like the passion there is so pure because it's really strictly what I want to do. And, um, it's so funny you say this because I have a memory of when I was little, like first grade, probably little, my mother would always try to get me to wear the outfits she picks out for me, always. And I, of course, every single morning, it was a huge hassle, a huge fight, me being like, no, I don't want to wear that. I hate that, blah, blah, blah. Um, and she was like, I don't know what to do. She won't ever wear these outfits I put together. And then her and my dad discovered the choice. And so what they started to do was put two outfits out and then all of a sudden, all the issues disappeared yeah. because I had the choice. So this started since I was such a little kid. And like yeah. all these morning fights yes. were completely solved when I just had two outfits. I could make a choice and it was my decision. 
Well, it's interesting that you get, uh, for people, most people can tell what they are, I think, just from this brief, brief description. But if you go to happiercast.com slash quiz, there's a quiz that will tell you what you are. But one of the things that I found since I've started talking about this, and I have a, a whole book coming up, out about it in September, is that once you know, you can like very easily sidestep major conflicts. And like one thing I hear about a lot is like, I'm the parent of a rebel child who wants to drop out of high school. What do I do? Or I'm the spouse of a rebel who doesn't want to look for a job. What do I do? And the fact is there's an answer to that. There is a very, very clear answer. And um, But if you don't understand the tendencies, everything that you feel like you should do, everything you'd think would make somebody feel helped and supported, it's going to actually backfire. And so, but once you, under, I mean, especially the rebel tendency, because it's very distinctive. It's like the choice is, is very important. It always has to, because in the end, they will always do what they choose to do. Um, they can do anything they want to do. They can do whatever they choose to do, but they're not going to do it because you told them to or because they're supposed to or because they said they would or because they should. Sometimes not even because it's legal. They're just like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. You know, and it's it's just once you understand that, everything becomes much easier. And I, I think for me, and maybe I might be a little bit wrong, but for me, I'm a very, very self-aware person. So I'm able to... I know this about myself and I really know myself and what I want as well, which I do think is, is a gift, like for me to be able to know what feels right for me, what doesn't. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it, it, one of the biggest things in my life that I have learned that has given me so much power is the fact that I can't control anyone else. And I wonder yep. if that's somehow, is that a lesson that is really beneficial to all rebels or, I mean, of course everyone, but is that especially beneficial for rebels? What, that you can't wait, that what, that, that you, you can't, can't control what anyone else does, or does that not really matter because the rebel generally doesn't even care what other people want? No, actually rebels are, can often be tyrannical. <laughs> some rebel, it's interesting. Some rebels are very much like, I want everybody to be free to do whatever they want. And some rebels are like, I want to be free to do what I want. And I want you to do what I want too. Mm, okay. So, that, so, so, so there's all different variations of the, of these tendencies. And it depends on like how smart you are, how ambitious you are, how considerate you are, how self-aware you are, as you pointed out. Um, so it can, like, you could line up 50 rebels and they would look very different in other aspects of their personality, except as to this one thing, it would be very similar. Um, I mean, I think it's a gen it's a very important lesson for everyone to learn, which is that the only person that you can control is yourself. That's absolutely true. It's a very sad truth about happiness, but it's very true. But one of the things that's true is like when you understand yourself, you can see sometimes how other people are different. So for instance, one thing that rebels often don't understand, and I will say this as an upholder, because upholders also don't understand this very well, and questioners don't always understand this very well, is obligers need accountability. For an obliger to meet an outer expectation or to meet an, or just as important to meet an inner expectation, there needs to be some form of outer accountability. And obligers will often ask for outer accountability. They'll say like, hey, honey, will you, every day when you come home from work, will you ask me if I went to the gym? Or like a, like a woman said to me like, oh, my daughter wanted to study for the GRE, you know, the graduate uh, exam. And she wanted to take a class. And I was like, oh, no, honey, if it's important to you to do well in the GRE, you don't need to take a class. You could just buy a book and study on your own. No, obligers need outer accountability. And so if people ask for accountability, sometimes the other tendencies are like, you don't need accountability because they don't really need accountability in the same way. Obligers absolutely crucially need outer accountability. And in fact, if you are an obliger, and you probably are because there's so many of them, or you're very close to obligers because they're everywhere, there's it's such a huge tendency. Um, 
if they're struggling with an inner expectation, if they can't, if they want to exercise but they can't get themselves to do it, if they want to start a side career but somehow they just can't make progress on their photography, if they want to eat healthier, you know, whatever, you know, they want to stop procrastinating at work, the solution for an obliger is always outer accountability. And there's a million ways that you can get outer accountability once you know that that's what you need. But see, sometimes if, like, I don't need outer accountability because I'm an upholder. And so sometimes I don't really, even when people want me to do that, I'm like, why Why should we waste our time doing that? It's, it's not important. But see, now that I understand the four tendencies, I realize it's very important. It's very important to some people. And so it's not that I'm changing them or, or, or trying to convert them. It's just that I'm like, well, what do you need to succeed in your aims? And how might that be different? If I'm your boss, well, maybe I'm not going to set up the circumstance of this workplace in a way that's going to allow you to do your best work if I just go by what would work for me, which is always our first instinct. Our first instinct is like, well, we are the way we are because that's the way everybody is. No, there's a million ways that we're different from other people. And the more you can identify those ways, the more you can say like, well, you need or questioners. Often in a workplace, questioners are incredibly valuable because they keep everybody efficient and on track. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing it this way? They can be incredibly valuable, but they can also drain and overwhelm people with their questions. And people are like, oh my gosh, we've gone over this a million times. We've made this decision. Why do you keep asking these questions? Or a boss could feel like someone's being insubordinate or not a team player or not respecting his or her authority because there are all these questions. And once you know the questioners are just like that, you're like, okay, man, why don't you and I go off to the side? Everybody else can go back to work, and you and I will get answer your questions. Fine, but that questioner is not going to get on board with that change until he or she feels like they understand why it's being done. And so, okay, we will give you what you need to feel comfortable with this change, but not everybody has to sit in a meeting while we talk about it for the next hour. They've heard enough. They can go back. So you can use it when you're managing or like parenting, as you're saying, uh, for teachers, uh, for spouses, for doctors, you know, I mean, managing a rebel, getting it, telling a rebel, you need to follow the doctor's orders. Well, sometimes a rebel's like, well, now I don't really have to do what the doctor tells me. I don't have to do what you tell me to do. So how do you, how do you handle that? Or, you know, like if you're, if your mom won't take her blood pressure medication, how do you set things up to make it more likely that she will? If you know her tendency, then it's much clearer what is likely to work. Can you have mixes with some? Because when I think about my past, I like say I was told to do something. I generally, I don't know. I generally like if, if the doctor told me to do something, I'm definitely going to do it. And if I have some sort of coach with business and they give me these ideas, it's kind of helpful for me to have that push. And then I do it again, but I'm also very self-motivated. So do some people kind of have a little bit of, I mean, like you saying, like you were saying, there's so many different types of people. So of course not everything's going to be black and white and you can have a little bit of something uh, pulled from another one probably. Well, I mean, nobody likes to do something that's totally arbitrary. So in that way we're all like questioners and we all do what we have to do. So in that way we're all like obligers. Um, and and nobody likes to be totally controlled. Um, that's so in that way we're all like rebels. But I okay. really do think like having looked at this, almost it's if people like so you might be a rebel who so rebel if if like I showed you the 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 logo, it's like four interlocking circles. So imagine rebel. In some ways, rebels are like obligers because rebels and obligers both resist inner expectation. But rebels are also like questioners because they both resist outer expectations. So you sound like a rebel who's, who's kind of leans to questioner because you're like, 
why you know i'll do what i'll do what i want to do but maybe i want to do that like maybe that makes sense for me you know like if you see it you're like yeah i could do that i want to do my thing but um that's okay but rebels who 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 are more like obligers have a much stronger feeling of resistance like sometimes i'm I'm sure you've heard people say this it's a very big tip-off that you're a rebel who tips to obliger is if somebody wants me to do something i won't do it even if i want to like, okay. oh, I was going to, you know, I wanted to clean up my, my room, but then my mom came in and told me I had to clean up my room, and so now I'm not going to. So that's a rebel who's more like an obliger, whereas you're like, well, mom, it doesn't matter what you say, because I like to have a clean room, because that's the kind of person I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But maybe I don't want to have a clean room. It's just like, well, you can't really control that, mom, but, like, I'm going to be me, and I like to have a clean room. So there are variations within it, but I really don't think people are mixed. It's not like you're one at home and one at work or you're one at 20 and one at 60. It's like the, these are really like deep, pervasive, I think, inborn. Uh, and, it's, it, and it's not like you can't overcome it. And with time and experience, I think everybody's – a lot of people sort of figure out. Like I, re, I now know what the limitations of upholders are, and I kind of offset them. But it's still – I'm always – my first instinct, my first impulse comes from my tendency – um, and I think that's true for people. I love this. I think this is going to be a new thing that I have all of my clients do. Just take this oh, quiz because I, I think this should be mandatory reading for all schools and doctors because it's so fascinating and it's, it's similar. It reminds me of, um, Gary Chapman. Oh, um, I love Gary Chapman. Five yeah. Yeah. It reminds me no, because of that. The minute you read it, the minute you read the five love languages, you know what you are and you know what like five people in your life are. And clarity. Like then you have clarity yeah. of like what someone needs and then boom, like there's better communication. There's more clarity on what makes this person feel loved. And I think if you understand the type of people that you're around, if they're questioners or this and that, you just have more understanding because then you realize not everyone's like me. There are different kinds of people and this is what I can expect from this type of person. They're not going to just want to do it immediately. So how can I better communicate with this person by giving them multiple outfits to choose from or whatever it may right, be? Right, right. No, no. And so in fact, I started this app called Better, the Better app, um, which is all about the four tendencies because I was having so many people saying like, uh, like I'm a teacher and I want to know how to use it with my students. And I was like, well, I, like I can, I want a place where I can answer, but also where other teachers could talk amongst themselves or other, you know, I hear like a lot of like, I'm a pediatric endocrinologist and I'm trying to help my patients manage their type two diabetes or whatever. And so what are the things that are, that, what are the things that are working? Because, um, you definitely see patterns in how things work. And your point is very well taken that like it's, you tend to get, try to help people by giving them the thing that would work for you. So just today, so I do high intensity strength training and I was in there today and my trainer is like a hundred percent questioner, hundred percent questioner. And his answer, whenever he's trying to give somebody, get somebody to do something, it's always like, I'm going to send them a study and I'm going to make my case. And like the, the, the evidence is overwhelming. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, your dad is an obliger, like giving a Sending him a bunch of studies that would be pers- that would help you, but it's not really that persuasive for your father because he's not a questioner. Because questioners always it's always like the arguments, and often like rebels will be um, and upholders too. It's all about like well like what is it that you want? Like getting clarity, yeah. clarity on the like for for upholders it's clarity of inner expectations because inner expectations can trump outer expectations. And that's and for questioners, it's like getting that clarity, and for rebels, it's getting that clarity. 
Okay. But it's like, yeah. but you know, but like if you're an obliger, you need outer accountability. It doesn't matter how clear your goals are. I mean, like how many people have you met who are like, it's 100% clear to me I need to exercise. I'm totally 100% motivated. Everything in me cries out. And I sit around thinking about how motivated I am to do it every single day. And I don't exercise. And I'm like, yeah, because that's not what's going to get you out the door. I'm like, sign up for a class where they're going to notice if you don't show up. Do it with a friend who's going to be disappointed if you bail. Think about your dog who, if you don't take her for a run, is going to tear up the furniture. Sign up for a charity run where you're going to raise money for an important institution that won't get that money if you don't do it. Um, you know, there's a million things to do if you realize that what you need is outer accountability. It, you know, like let's say you're trying to start a, a job on the side. This is I hear from a lot of people who are like, I, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to start something. but And year after year is going by and I just somehow never get to it. Why is it that I always put other people's priorities in front of my own? Okay, I'm like, it's not that. What's going on here is accountability. So what you need to do is like hire a coach who's going to hold you accountable for deadlines or get a client. You want to be a wedding photographer? Tell somebody you'll do it for free because you need a client. Well, now you've got somebody who's expecting you to show up and take pictures of their wedding. And if you don't, it's going to be a catastrophe. So you've got to do it. Do that a few times. You've got clients. They're a client even though you're doing it for free. And then you can start getting paying clients. And once you have paying clients, you're not going to have any trouble because there's this outer accountability. But when you're just like, oh, in my free time, I should make a website, this is never going to get done because there's no one waiting for it. There's no accountability for it. But you could you could hire you could join a group on the on my better app. You can join a group of people who will all hold each other accountable because it's like you don't have to pay. You know, I mean, there's so many ways to do it. But and this is why coaches are so valuable, because a coach is like, let's figure out what is it that you want to expect from yourself and let's make deadlines. And I'm going to hold you to those deadlines. And for so many people, that is the crucial missing piece. They need somebody saying, OK, we talked about this and today's the day. I'm expecting you to do to report back. And for an obliger, that's incredibly freeing. It's, it's, it allows them to do all the things that they've wanted to do. Um, but to a rebel, that doesn't really make much. You know, they're like, ooh, gosh, if I knew somebody was looking over my shoulder like that, I think I wouldn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. It's different. Oh, that's so funny. That's so funny hearing you talk. Cause I'm just like, this is, this is so me. But uh, I'll make sure that I have the better app on the show notes for this because oh, it great. sounds awesome. I also wanted to ask you, do you have a message or, or something that you've written about maybe in the happiness project or any of your other books, something that you believed at the time, but you don't believe anymore? Mm, well, yeah. Well, one thing where I really uh, changed my mind dramatically was, uh, so one of the things, if you look at the research around happiness, one thing that's very, very clear is that, uh, is the argument that novelty and challenge make people happier. And there's all this research, you know, people who do new things, even little things like going to a different restaurant rather than their same old restaurant are happier and and uh, challenge makes people happier. And I, when I read that, I thought, eh, maybe that's true generally, but it's not true for me because I like familiarity and mastery. Like I eat the same food every day. I, I don't often leave my neighborhood. I like to read and write all the time. And that's basically all I like to do uh, and hang out with my friend, family and friends. And so I thought, well, maybe... I just don't think that's true for me. But as part of the happiness, the happiness project was like an experiment. I was going to experiment with all these ideas. So I had to do something to experiment. And I 100% believed that I would do something novel and challenging. It would not make me happier. And then I would like write about that. Um, so I decided to start a blog. That's what I did. That's what I did. And I, at that time, I had no idea how blogs worked. Super untechy. Um, it was a very, very challenging uh, thing to start. Um, it, 
it made me feel dumb. Uh, it made me feel incompetent. I was very nervous about some, putting something online because, but I would say to myself, oh, it doesn't matter because I feel so exposed, but actually no one will ever read this, so it doesn't matter. Um, and then I loved it. Loved it. And my blog has become this huge engine of happiness for me. And now I really know that not, I really, change my my mind and novelty and challenge do bring people happiness i'm a big believer in that and i will take it into account like um if if, if i'm thinking oh should i go on this trip i'm like well i don't really feel like it you know but i'm like mm, but I'll, pro I'll i'm sure that i'll be happy that i went because it'll be new it'll be different uh i'll get new ideas have new experiences um so that's some place where my thoughts really changed do you still think that there could be some people out there that don't like that? Or do you think deep down everyone can appreciate that to some extent? Well, I think the problem is anxiety. I mean, some people really mm. are very, very anxious. And so if you have, if you're really struggling with some kind of anxiety disorder, anything novel and challenging might tip you into that. And yeah. so then that's getting, that's getting into a place that's, that's beyond the kind of the normal experience. That's like somebody who's really has a very specific personality struggle. But probably even for them, like within the margins of, you know, circa of what's appropriate for them. I mean, because I think some people, some people clearly like have extremely high tolerances for novelty. Like a friend of mine said to me, my favorite thing is to land in a foreign country without a visa. What? And just figure it out. You know, like she likes going to war torn countries for real. Like that's her job now, actually. She made her job going to war torn countries because she just loved it. She likes a lot of adrenaline, a lot of excitement, a lot of like, like, you know, really. Um, I mean, she's also very human, has very humanitarian minded. So for her, it's the perfect thing because she's really helping people. She's going to places where people desperately need help. But she also, like, she, she can take it. Where somebody like me, I'm like, I can't, I couldn't take it. I couldn't do that, you know, because my idea of doing something really adventurous is starting a blog in my own office, you know, that to me felt very high stakes. <laughs> um, so I think people have different tolerances um, for sure. You know, one person wants to go bungee jumping and another person is going off the high board uh, at the country club <laughs> swimming pool. Um, so I think you have to know what's the natural limitations of your nature. But certainly the research suggests that novelty and challenge make people happier. Have you ever read anything by uh, Mark Manson? Do you know who that is? Um, it's Ringing a Bell. So not, not that I re specifically recall, but what are some of the titles that I might have? So his, he recently wrote a book called, excuse me for cussing, but uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, actually, he's represented by a friend of mine. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, his book was my book of 2016. Um, yeah. I did a whole podcast just kind of recapping my favorite parts. Like, I just fell in love with this book. I want to read it every year. But hey. one of the huge things he talks a lot about, he hits hard, is everyone having values and metrics for those values. Mm -hmm. So you can have bad values, whereas like a bad value would be, uh, I want to be in a rock band and be more famous than this other rock band because you're really trying to go for this comparison value and like that's never going to set you up for success um and like the metric of whether or not you you succeeded this value is this this is the state of the other band if you can follow what i'm saying yeah sure um, absolutely. so in your life do you have a core value that you mm. you you always keep in mind whenever you're doing mm. anything and do you have a metric mm. for measuring uh, your mm -hmm. status on that value well, I think that it's interesting that you say that because that's one of the things that really came across to me in the four tendencies is that the four tendencies, I mean, obviously, we all have many, many values, 
you know, like, are you really interested, concerned about the environment? Are you really, you know, interested in, in how children thrive? You know, there's all kinds of values. But there are certain values that are tied very clearly to your tendency. For instance, spontaneity. That is of almost no value to me. I would say that, like, I have no interest in spontaneity. It's just not a value that I value. Whereas for you, spontaneity is like the first, was like one of the first words out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, and for me, like the word discipline, to me, this is an enormously attractive word. Discipline. Like, I have such positive associations with that. And really, as an upholder, my motto is discipline is my freedom. I see discipline as my freedom. But then see to a rebel, they're like, that, you crazy girl. That is like, that's, what is that? Discipline is not freedom. So, so those are the, so the, there are those values. But I think the deepest value, and it kind of goes, it's like one step beyond that. I think my highest value is self-knowledge. I really feel like the way to have a happier, healthier, more productive, more creative life um, and I feel like the great challenge of our lives is to know ourselves. And really, it's when you and, – and you feel like, what could be easier than knowing yourself? You just hang out with yourself all day. Like, how is that hard? But, you know, we are so often affected by what we think we should want or do or be or what other people expect us to want or do or be um, are just our assumptions about the world. Um, sometimes we just think there's something wrong with us, you know, like um, – you know, my husband can get up and go for a run every morning at 7 a.m. Why can't I? I have no self-control. I'm lazy. I have no willpower. No, you're a night person. You're up until 2 every night. You should exercise at 4 p.m. Because that's when you're at your more – he's a morning person who wakes up really energetic. You're going to be much more energetic in the afternoon. So exercise then. There's nothing about your self-control or your willpower or laziness. It's just like the one person's a morning person and one person's a night person. Nobody's right. Nobody's wrong. So, I mean, I feel like with self-knowledge, we can really set up our lives in a way that can help us to be happier. And then, and that is when we understand our true values. Because you, I used to think, like, well, doesn't everybody just have the same values because those are the good values? No, they don't. They don't have the same values, you know. Um, they really have different values. And when you understand, yeah, in a lot of ways, we're very much like other people, but the differences are really important. And so I think for me, I think that core value is self-knowledge. That's a great value. I love that. And what's, um, what's your core value? Oh, man, my core value. Um, the first thing that comes to mind, as much as I love um, self-awareness, I think right now, really presently in my life is, and this might be a little bit dependent on other people, but it is to be um, of service to others. And that's, that comes a lot out of just the work that I'm doing of like coaching people and doing workshops. I think that's super present in my life is just trying to bring comfort and, um, insight to as many people as I can by just being vulnerable with them and sharing with them or holding space. So that's a very big value in my life is just being of service. And I don't know, I, I think there are other layers. I think there are definitely ones that are more along the lines of, self-awareness and just being able to be content at times. But, um, for right now, that's the one that's coming to mind. Um, but the, the, the problem with that one is that it can be, um, since it is kind of dependent on people, it's like, well, if I didn't serve people well today, then what does that say about me? So I have to be very careful about that being a value and to keep it really, Mm. yeah, not to have it dependent Mm. on other people because, Something that I've I've recently realized is like, and I'm I've been working on this for just the past month, which has been great, and I've I've been feeling better this month because I've targeted it. But 
I've been kind of lacking inspiration recently, and it could be because it's like cold, it gets dark early, uh, it's just the end of the year, it's just the cycle I'm in. So I've been kind of lacking some inspiration, and normally what I would do is go to a coffee shop and force myself to work. But, and like force creativity, but recently I've just been like, no, I don't think I want to do that. I think that if I force myself to do that, I'll just end up creating something that's not that great. And then that's when I realized that the value is not necessarily, um, the most beneficial because if I don't serve someone, I might feel crummy in that day or feel like I wasn't purposeful. So I think I need to go a step deeper and, and kind of like, pinpoint that value a little bit more so it's more about me and my feeling for that day and less of like what did I do for other people mm, interesting interesting because if I don't have something that I do for someone in a day like if I like right now when I've been realizing that I don't want to work I'm tired then I feel bad I'm like oh no it's a wasted day or who am I if I am not this person who am I and that's brought up a lot for me of just saying whoa that is not a good place to be like when I'm wondering who I am if I'm not working then I'm doing the same thing that I've done in my my past of um putting a label on me as I am this girl and then if you know if I don't have that thing going on for that day, then I question my, like, what's my purpose if it's not that. So I'm going through a period of reanalyzing in a way of trying to figure out what that, the deeper value behind that really is. Like maybe it's just feeling, um, uh, joyful and maybe I just feel happy when I do that work, but the value might be more of like, I don't know. I'm kind of just thinking here but i think i should just think more on it before i speak interesting well it's it's a fascinating question it, it seems a little dry but it's actually quite fascinating to think about mm-hmm. yeah it is and it'll keep you thinking forever <laughs> i'll be yeah. thinking on this today um okay cool so this has been fantastic you are amazing thank you so much for coming on and we have a, a short quick fire round if you're feeling up for it sure Awesome. Okay. I love a fire round. Fire rounds are awesome. Mine are a little bit harder, I will say. They're a little bit deeper. They're not as easy fire, but I'm sure you've got them. You know them. Uh, Number one is three words to describe you. Oh, red-haired, left-handed, extremely nearsighted. Those are really good. Uh, If you could live anywhere in the world besides where you live now, where would it be? Oh, gosh. That's a tough one. Oh, can I say Brooklyn? <laughs> sure. Uh, okay, Brooklyn. Okay. Um, I li- what? I live in Manhattan, so it's a different borough. <laughs> That's that can- what I this- if, that- if that counts. Totally. Where you want to live is where you want to live. Um, what did you eat for breakfast? Three scrambled eggs. That's what I eat every day. Nom. What's your morning routine look like? Mm. Uh, I get up at 6 a.m. I take my, I have a puppy, Barnaby, so I take him out for his walk. Then I work in my office until it's time for me to get my two daughters up and around. And then I, I walk my younger daughter to school, come back, and then I, I either go to the gym, like depending on the day, I either go to the gym on the way back or I come back and do some work and then go to yoga or weight training um, or I might go for a walk. But then, then I'm then I'm working all day long, um, and I and every one of the things that I I love routine and scheduling. But one of the things I have to do work on is that every day is different. Like I'm working, but maybe I'm recording a podcast, so I have to go to mm-hmm. Brooklyn, or maybe I'm um, maybe I'm writing a blog post, so I have to be at my desk, or maybe I'm going to the library because I'm a 
do some intensive writing and so I want to get away from the siren call of the internet. Um, or maybe I have a meeting or I'm going to meet a friend for lunch. And so every day unfolds differently. But, you know, during the day, that's like my work time. I love it. What is your favorite nickname that you've ever been given? Oh, well, my sister calls – it's funny. My sister calls me Gretch, which my mother hates. And actually somebody just emailed me saying, I hate it. I love your podcast, but I hate it when your sister calls you Gretch. And I'm like, oh, but I love it because she's called me Gretch my whole life. And my mother's always like, don't call her Gretch. And Alyssa's like, I can't help it. So I guess that's probably my favorite nickname. That, I find it kind of interesting that someone would tell you that they don't like that nickname. Like I would never think to say I hate it whenever you get called this nickname. Like I have no personal attachment to people's nicknames. Your nickname's your well, nickname. Well, it's not, a, it's not a mellifluous word, Gretch. I will say that. But I was a little surprised because I'm like, it's one thing for our mom to say that. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it did seem a little odd that somebody – but I think, it, I think it, it, meant, it was meant in a very intimate, loving way. Um, so I, I didn't take it amiss. Okay, um, yeah. You know, sometimes people just have their things that bug them. Yeah. So, well, speaking of that, do you have any pet peeves? That's my next question. Ooh, pet peeves. Um, I don't like it when my husband doesn't answer my email, which he like, oh, so one of my husband's a questioner. And one of the things about questioners is they don't like being questioned. And he doesn't like if I send if I email him a question, he won't answer me. And it drives me crazy. And like, we we've talked about it many, many times. But he's just like, he just I'm like, I just just answer my email. And then I can like get on with everything. But he just doesn't. <laughs> That pet peeve. What, he's a great guy. <laughs> what is like quality wise? What is your biggest turn on in and your hus and your husband? Quality wise, ooh, interesting. He he's enormously curious. He knows a ton about a ton of things. He learns really fast. Um, but I mean, that's something I admire about him. But is that like the, my deepest thing? He's a real softie. Like if you met him. He's, I think he seems pretty intimidating, but he's actually got a super soft heart. Like he's constantly like wants to be hugged and kissed mm. and like loves romantic comedy movies and like romantic sitcoms. And um, so he has a very tender heart. Oh, that's sweet. Who are three people you invite to the perfect dinner party? Ooh, I was just asked this question. Um, the New York Times book review does those by the book. So I said I would invite Samuel Johnson, Flannery O'Connor, uh, Winston. Wait, yeah, wait, Samuel Johnson, Flannery O'Connor, Virginia Woolf, and George Orwell. Ooh. And I would know that one of them couldn't come. So I, I snuck in all four. Um, and uh, because the, those are the people whose writing I study all the time. Those are the great masters whose writing I admire the most. So I would love to just like get them talking and I would sit in the corner and take notes about writing. Those <laughs> That's are awesome. People, those are the four people whose writing I admire the most. What's your favorite meal right now? Oh, maybe a scrambled eggs because I have it every single day. I love a hamburger. I like, I am like very boring, very unadventurous. Um, I, I mean, yeah. Probably a hamburger and scrambled eggs are my two favorite things to eat. Do you have like the scrambled egg down pat like perfectly? Because my scrambled eggs are always really terrible and I can't master them. I don't have a secret for scrambled eggs, but I do have a secret for hard-boiled eggs. Do you need a hard-boiled egg secret? I can always use a hard-boiled egg secret. Okay. So somebody on our podcast emailed me because I was saying how I could never make hard-boiled eggs. And she said, use the Krupp's egg maker. 
It's and I was like, okay, fine, I'm getting it. And so there's probably other egg makers, but I'm like, if it's good enough for her, it's good enough for me. I'm not even gonna like look on, look, you know, do any research. And so many people have said like, oh my gosh, Gretchen, ever since you told me about this Krebs egg maker, it's changed my life. And now all I do is boil eggs all day long. It is the greatest thing. And hard boiled eggs are such a great food. They're healthy. You can transport them. They're filling. You can do a lot with them. Like you can add them to salads. You can make egg salad. You can eat them just a hard boiled egg with salt. You can put salsa on them. You can do a million things. Um, and, uh, you can have one. You can have two. You can have three, depending on how hungry you are. And this, I'm not, I am not a big believer in buying like a device for everything. I'm like, why would you buy a hard boiled egg maker if you could just use a, a pan? But I got this and it changed my life. So if you want to add, I think eggs are like the perfect food and they're beautiful. I love the look of eggs. I just admire them. So that's my that's my hack is the Krups egg. I love it. I'll make sure I have that in the show notes as well because I'm probably going to get one because I never eat hard boiled eggs anymore because it's just too hard to make. Yeah. Now, there's always this kind of uncertainty. Exactly. I feel like around them, um, how much water, how much time I'm making two, I'm making three. This is like adjustable. Yes. It's Krups. K-R-U-P-S. I love, I love it. It's like, and I gave one to my dad. My dad loves it. Ooh, I'm excited. Okay. Yeah. If love tasted like any flavor in the world of anything, what would it taste like? I think now I have to say egg. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of you were going to say, I was like, I wonder if it's going to be egg. Yeah. Uh yeah I don't yeah egg, I'll go with eggs the perfect eggs. What's your favorite Disney movie? You <gasps> probably Mary Poppins. Oh Mary Poppins. Oh. Yeah yeah I that's never, Disney right? I don't know I've never heard of anyone give that answer. That's interesting. I, I'm I'm uh, assuming it's Disney. It dates me. Yes it is. Disney. <laughs> it dates you. Well I mean I totally love that movie as well. I feel like I grew up with that. Um, if you joined the circus, what would your position be? Ooh, I think trapeze artist. Trapeze artist. I love that. So this might be tough, but besides your book, obviously, because everyone needs to read it, what's a must-read book for everyone right now? Mm. Well, the book that I most often recommend, and I this is – well, can I say a book that I don't think is for everybody, but for yeah. some people, they will love it? Okay. Totally. So this isn't like the universal book. Um I think the universal book is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I will just put that. It's short. It's incredibly absorbing. It's like the most beautiful book of all time. Everyone should read it at all times. So run out and get Man's Search for Meaning. But everybody knows that because it's a super famous book. Justly so. Viktor Frankl. But the book that people don't know about enough is a book called A Pattern Language. And this is an amazing book. What it does is it looks – because I'm very, very non-visual – um, and this book was a revelation to me. It's a he the the Christopher Alexander identifies 253 patterns, and these are patterns that make people feel good in spaces. So it's not like this is Art Deco or your chandelier should be 30 inches off of your dining room table. It's like what do you feel good? What makes you feel good in a space? So it might be like why does your office feel like? Why are you really uncomfortable in your office? What's right or what's wrong with your office? Um, it's maybe you're too close to other people. You can hear too many people doing two kinds of too many kinds of things. There's no natural light. You can, you have no view. Like he'll, he just says all these things, or like in your house, it's all these like almost poetic things, like um, terrace overlooking life, child's cave, half wild garden, uh, sleeping to the east, secret place. 
And there's pictures and like some are like, uh, you know, 1970s California ranch house. And one is like a 15th century Norwegian farmhouse. And you're like, I love them both. I must have this in my house. And it's like it's it's uh, light on two sides. Like living in New York where people don't have much light, you realize you're so much more comfortable in a, in a room that has light on two sides. It's really important. Um, and so it's just these little – and each one, it's just like a page or two long, and you just flip through it, and it just I, – I, I feel like now – like why do I like this restaurant? Ceiling at different heights. Look around in your life, and you will see that you feel much more comfortable in a, in a room where, there's, where the ceiling is at different heights. It's just like this weird thing. If there's a totally flat ceiling, it just doesn't feel as good. And so anyway, to me, it was just like it's a way to like lock into the world in a whole new, really interesting, imaginative, unexpected way. Yeah, and just know yourself on a totally deeper level. I love that. What's, yeah. what's it called again? It's called a pattern language. Pattern language. Because he's looking at these patterns. Um, it's a weird book. Like it's not a book that you sit down at the beginning and read all the way through, but everybody that I know who has looked at it has been – they're transfixed in it in their own way. Everybody takes something different from it because it's just like it's kind of um, it's just like nothing else I've ever read in my life. I like that. Okay, cool. I'll be checking that out. Last question for you: If you had a movie about your life, who would you cast to play you? Oh my gosh, <laughs> who would I cast? Um, I don't know. Um. I don't know. I don't know very. I don't know actress. The world of actors very well. Um, I just saw Ghostbusters, so maybe Kristen Wiig. Oh my gosh, I love her. I think she's hilarious. She is hilarious. That's a. And she's kind of an pick. earnestness. I definitely have an earnestness, and she can play earnest very well. So. That's a fantastic pick. I love that. Well, Gretchen Rubin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, Your thank you. I feel like we presence. could talk all day. We're interested I know. in so many of the same subjects. It's tons of fun. I know. It's so much fun. You you really made my day. I just have to say that. You made my day for coming on my show. Um, I just I, I remember like thinking, like out of all the people that I really want on my show right now, who would it be? And I was like, I really want Gretchen. So I'm just going to ask her. So thank you for coming oh, on. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you. Okay, everyone, make sure that you go to the show notes for this episode since we talked about so many awesome things, books, tools, all these different things. Go over there. Check out the links to her books. If you haven't already uh, bought them, you can buy them there. And while you're there, you can sign up for my free course, How to Powerfully Live Your One Life. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. I, have, I hope you have a wonderful rest of the year, and I guess I'll see you next year. 